standing at the back back there and looking at the back of your heads, and uh, many of those heads I know, some of them I don't. My burden this morning, at least initially, is uh, before we climb into the Word together, is I just kind of want this to be almost like a living room or a den where we just sit together. And uh, I know it's, it's easier when you know people, because we may have done that before in our home or yours. But if you're here for the first time or you, you don't know the people surrounding you, um, that may be a little bit awkward. But I know that the Holy Spirit can work that to where we can just really, even better than the living room or the dining room, just sit at the, at the kitchen table together. Because really what we're about to do in the next few minutes is we're about to dine. I used to put so much emphasis on a single Sunday, almost without fail, I was really terribly disappointed week by week. You can ask Christy, on Sunday afternoons I'd go home and get in the fetal position on my bed and just boo-hoo sometimes. It was terribly um, gut-wrenching. And I think it's because I viewed a single Sunday as the life-changing instrument. And what I've realized is that it's really more about a diet. It's kind of been liberating for me to understand that we are gardeners. I'm a gardener, and the soil of the heart is really my aim. And a gardener doesn't really achieve anything in his garden in one day. (laughs) It, It takes time, and it takes cultivating and watering and fertilizing and all those things that are part of good gardening and so it's not diminishing the value of a single Sunday. It's just appreciating that it's about a healthy diet. Looking at a single Sunday like it's going to be life-changing might be looking at a single meal like it's going to be life-changing. I can remember some specific meals like salt grass or <laughs> three forks in Dallas. Um, but in reality, good health comes from a, a good healthy diet. So this, this message this morning is actually a, a diet message and... Um, doesn't diminish the value of it, just what I hope that it does this morning is that it makes for a bigger cross and a smaller you, and um, that happens a little bit at a time, kind of a week at a time, and I hope that this morning will be one little change that for some of you that may never think of Christ between Sundays, that maybe you'll think of Christ once this coming week. For those of you who might think of Him four or five times and pray a little bit, then maybe you'll think about him seven or eight times and maybe worship a little bit. You know, it just kind of takes you into a, a different place at a meal at a time. So this morning, if, you're, um, if this is an unfamiliar ground for you at Crosspoint, I hope that you just see a bunch of ordinary people sitting around a table with a life-changing word and um, with lives laid bare, willing to let it speak to us. Let's start with prayer this morning. Lord, I just pray for transparency, authenticity. Uh, Pray for the kitchen table, uh, that we can sit and just be genuine and be open and be engaging, that we can hear a word that changes our hearts just a little piece at a time, gives us a view of a bigger cross and a... uh, maybe a better view of us being just instruments of glory and uh, maybe it being less all about us and more all about you and your glory. 
Uh, Lord, I just pray that you'll work that in these next few minutes, that you'll, you'll speak to hearts, including mine, and um, that we'll be more attentive as a result, that we'll worship harder, that the gospel will become more invasive, just a little bit more in our lives, and that we'll be changed. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for um, Robert Cook and Lone Oak Baptist Church, Lord. We want to pray for Robert and his wife. I pray for their marriage, Lord. I pray that it is rich and blessed. I pray that Robert is, is um, delighting with his bride and that she is encouraging and, and ministering to him and building him up. I pray that both of them are sitting at the feet of the cross and they're being nourished by the word. I pray that Robert is engaging the word between Sundays and that he is being wrecked and undone and uh, disassembled and reassembled in the image of Christ and that not only is he ministering to his wife and family, but that he is uh, gushing and overflowing in his ministry to his people. Lord, I pray as a result of this people dining on a shared word that we, that we are dining on here in the, these next few minutes, that both bodies will be raised up together to worship out loud and that we'll never have a spirit of competition any more than we would with any other church in this community but that the people of God in this community will just become through the work of the Spirit and through the exposition of the Word and the dining and feasting on the Word and the worship, out loud worship, that the Christians in this community will become saltier and brighter and more aromatic and that you'll be more and more glorified by the people of God in this community. Lord, we just pray that their time in the Word right now is being blessed also. We turn this time over to you for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> this Sunday was to be about Satan. I have uh, two messages that I actually prepared in these previous couple of weeks when uh, we were here in town a week before last and when we were in Pittsburgh this last week. And we got home on Thursday and um, I just couldn't. I'm kind of trying to put the finishing touches on these messages and I couldn't do it because the Lord was kind of hanging me up. And I. I never hear an audible voice from him. I just have a kind of a lingering discomfort with uh, the messages that I intended to preach at the time that I intended to preach them. And he actually kind of placed me in a, play, in a spot of being camped out on the first part of a verse that we were not going to ignore, but I was going to preach on later. But uh, we're going to dine on it this morning. Turn to John chapter 12. I should have had you turn there. Many of you may be there already. <clears throat> John chapter 12. As you're turning there, I'll share with you where we're going these next couple of weeks. We are going to look at Satan. I, there's a real weird, distorted view of Satan that I think we can let the Word illuminate. We're going to ask and answer three questions in these next couple of Sundays. One being, uh, what happened to Satan at the cross? A second question being, what influence does he have now? What power does he, does he have right now? And third, should we be afraid of him? So we're going to ask and answer those questions in the next couple of months, and, um, or next couple of weeks. It won't be months. <laughs> Could be. John 12, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered, and others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What I want to focus on this morning is the first part of verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. As I shared, I was going to be preaching on this later in the chapter. There's a more thorough address of judgment, but I just got stuck here. And the Lord gave me what I believe to be His message this morning. Is an outline is right here in the verse. Now is the judgment of this world. First, I want to look at the now. What is now? What's He talking about time-wise? And secondly, I want to look at judgment. And third, I want to look at the world. First, the now. Jesus is speaking likely here in Sunday of the Passover week. Sunday of the week where he will be nailed to a cross on Friday. So here it is on Sunday, and he's referring to this time that he has entered into as his hour. So we need to know right up front, when we hear hour, when we think of hour, we need to shift gears and realize that it's not a 60-minute hour like we know on our watches or our clocks. The hour, as Christ is referring to it, is like shorthand for this localized period when his work and his life comes to a climax here in this week. This hour began in verse 23 where I began reading. Throughout the whole book up to John 12, he's been saying, My hour has not yet come. My hour is coming. My hour is not here yet. But then here in verse 23, when the Greeks come to him, this is an important moment. He says, the hour has come. That's when his localized climax of his work began. And it continues with his messages through the rest of the book. If you notice, if you have a red letter Bible, if you turn the pages through the rest of the book of John, there's a lot of red. There's a lot of teaching and preaching in the rest of this week where he's exposing the truths about him. So the hour began where the Greeks came to him. It continues with his messages, continues with his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, continues with his supper where he sits and has the Passover meal with the disciples, continues with his arrest and his trials and his beatings and his cross. But it doesn't end there. His hour ends with him vacating a sealed tomb on a Sunday morning just a couple days later. So this hour is really more like a week. And what I want you to see, first of all, this morning in the now, as he's saying now is the judgment of this world, he's saying now in this hour is the judgment of this world. And what I want you to realize in this hour, that this is the most important hour in the history of the world. Before Christ or since Christ, this is the hour. 
I like new words because they are like tools of glory, tools of revelation, tools of to expose truth. And a word that I, I want you to learn and note this morning is in regards to this hour, that this hour is a seminal hour. It means that it is decisive hour. This week-long hour is an extraordinary event in time. This is the Everest of weeks, this hour that he speaks of right here. And the question for you to consider first this morning, the question to chew on this morning is, if this hour is the most important hour in history, since the beginning of time to the end of time, whenever that will be, how important is this hour in your time? How important is it? How invasive is it? If I were to ask you about your most memorable, most important moments in your life, it might be when you shared your wedding vows with each other. It might be when you saw your firstborn born. <laughs> what an awesome time that, that was for us. I can imagine that might be the kind of thing that you shared, but for people that are believing on Christ, this hour has to be our seminal, decisive, Everest moment. This week-long hour must not be an appendage or an afterthought or just a mere interest. This hour has got to be our thing. The thing that we linger on, the thing that makes a difference in us, the thing that invades our lives more and more on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis, the thing that becomes more and more captivating, more and more life-changing, more and more important. This is our hour. First of all, and this is an hour for judgment. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now, in this hour, in this final week of my life, is the judgment of this world. Let's talk about judgment. I've done a study on judgment in the Bible, and I just scratched the surface. I mean, judgment is all over the Bible. It starts in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, as man is evicted from the garden. And it ends, really, in Revelation chapter 20. Where's the picture of all creation, all humanity standing before a white throne judgment? And it's cover to cover. It's all over the place. So in trying to define judgment, I was completely overwhelmed. So what I decided to do is go with John. Just stick with the book of John and let John expose judgment. Since we're reading in John, we can let John's definition be the instrument. John's use of judgment means condemnation and punishment, and to some degree, separation. So rephrasing this passage in John 12, 31, now in this hour is the condemnation and the punishment and the separation of this world. This hour is that important. Now let's expose and amplify it a little bit more. We've defined it a little bit, but let's illustrate it. John chapter 3, verse 19 I want to illustrate this hour and the impact of this hour by looking at John chapter 3, verse 19. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus comes to him by night. especially appropriate that he's responding to him about light and being the light of the world. Nicodemus comes to him by night. Here's how he responds in verse 19. He says, and this is the judgment. 
He says, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And this is the judgment. So judgment that I just described, the condemnation, the punishment, the separation, this is illustrated in what is being shared right here, where the light breaks into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. I've always had a view of judgment that's kind of like a courtroom where everybody's sitting in there and we've got a judge and we've got possibly a jury and we've got the accused and we've got accusers and we've got all these people that are just kind of sitting out in the audience and we maybe have some witnesses brought up. This is more complex or maybe it's more simple. I don't know. It's just different from a courtroom environment. Judgment is the entire event where the world is in darkness. I'm a young young earth guy. I don't mean to put you on a tangent this morning, but I believe the earth is about 10,000 years old as we sit here right now. So at this point, the earth is about 8,000 years old. We've had about 8,000 years of darkness where man has proven to be dark, where the world has proven to be dark, and then the light breaks forth into the world. The light breaking forth into the world is the incarnation where Christ takes on flesh. The light breaking forth into the world where it's turned up to supernova brightness is in this hour where he enters, re-enters Jerusalem and where he speaks and where he preaches and where he goes through trials and beatings and spit and a cross and an empty tomb. That's where it turns up to where it's so bright. It's like supernova bright. And the reality is that rather than run to the light, the world flees from this supernova of Christ crucified and risen. And the reason it does that is because the dark, the darkness of the world is exposed in the light of this hour. The dark secrets of the world, the dark places, sin, hidden things, and ugly truths about who we really are are exposed in this hour by this work on this cross and this empty tomb. This is the instrument that exposes it. In the light of this hour, we see our spiritual bankruptcy and we see our spiritual impotence. And it's in this hour that we really come to know the truth. And that's the judgment. Judgment in the book of John, this 319 sort of judgment where the light comes into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil, is like a rat killing at the Alexandria Animal Clinic. I grew up in the home of a veterinarian in Alexandria, Louisiana. My dad has a clinic that he's had there for 40 years in Alexandria, and being the hired hand that I was, I was fed room and board. I was given room and board for helping at the Alexandria Animal Clinic. One of my jobs was whenever Dad had to go up there at night for a, for a, a, a night call or some sort of emergency or something like that, that I was his teammate, at least a certain portion of my life, period of my life. And one, we, we started a routine that happened once a, once a month, maybe once a quarter. It really wasn't on the schedule. It was just whenever we had the notion to do this, where we would actually have a rat killing at the Alexandria Animal Clinic. We have the main clinic that Dad sees the patients in, and then back behind that, he's got the kennel building. And the kennel building sits right next to this, this canal that runs right there through town. And if you've ever been in Louisiana or central Louisiana, there's a lot of water. And what is around water a lot are rats. And things like that. 
And these big sewage rats used to come out of this canal. They probably still do. We haven't had a rat killing in some time, but I'm sure he's doing some version of that now. But these rats would come out of that canal, and they actually chewed a little hole that they, in the bottom of the door into the kennel building that they would come in through, and they would come in and eat the dog food, and then they would hang out and hide out in our old washer and dryer that sat back there in the kennel building. It was warm. They crawled up in the mechanic. I don't know what they look like. I was just imagining what they look like as they crawled into the mechanics, you know, the wires and the motor of this washer and dryer as they're sitting gnawing on dog food with a scowl on their face, <laughs> laughing. <laughs> That's what we envisioned that they were doing. But what we found is that they were in there by force and by number. And what, the way we figured this out is we went back there one day, one night, and Dad flipped on the light, and we started seeing these big, I mean, big rats scurrying for this hole in the bottom of the door. So what we planned was a good old McGraw rat killing. And the way we did this is I manned the broom. I manned the broom right by the hole at the bottom of this door, and my dad stood by the light ready to flip it on. We didn't turn the light on yet because it was in the turning on the light that these guys began to flee or they began to hide. So he'd flip on the light, and in the next few minutes would ensue the most electrifying alarming, <laughs> exhilarating, I mean, thinking of all the words I can think of, what this was, of rat killing. And goosebumps upon goosebumps as you're screaming at the top of your lungs, beating rats to death. <laughs> and we'd kill seven or eight of them, and then the next phase would be where you actually shook the washer or dryer, and three or four more would come out, fleeing for the door. Now, the reason I share this story is for purpose is because in some ways it illustrates the darkness lovers getting their due. It illustrates judgment and the whole hour of the light coming on. The light being flipped on is the cross where Christ is crucified and risen. And it's a picture of the darkness lovers fleeing from the light. Or as they sit and hide inside the guts of a washer and dryer and they gnaw on dog food and they think they're free and they think that's life. Or as they flee for a little space at the bottom of a door and they scurry over there and they think, I'm alive and I'm even going to be more free once I make it through that hole. What they don't realize all along is that the broom is coming. It's not a matter of if it comes, it's a matter of when it comes, because they're going to get their due. The reality is that judgment, this hour where Christ is crucified and risen, the judgment that is exposed in that hour is the entire event, and the cross is the intense light that comes on in the kennel building. And judgment is the examination that every one of us will face, every single one of us will face when we are, have to consider and we are examined for what have you done with this hour? Did this hour invade your life? Were you drawn to the light in this hour? Are you being drawn to the light? Or is that cross and Golgotha becoming less and less important? More and more of just kind of an interest, kind of a pastime? Or is it becoming your everything over time? Judgment is in this hour 
And judgment is going to be administered to the world. Let's talk about the world for a minute. I'm going to let John define world. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 10. John chapter 1, verse 10 shows really kind of the transition of the use of word in the whole book. Look at John chapter 1, verse 10. This is speaking of Christ. It says, He was in the world and the world was made through Him. That use of the word world right there is what we might imagine in the Genesis creation event with swarms and swarms and teams and teams of fish and birds and creatures and insects and creepy crawly things. That's the world as He's referring to it right there, that Christ made all that. Christ was the agent of creation. God spoke and the Word went into action and created. But then world is used a little bit differently in the rest of that verse. Look at it. He was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. The transition there in that verse for what world means is it moves from meaning the cosmos of creation to meaning humanity, dark humanity that hides and flees from the light. Dark humanity that gave us 8,000 years of proof that judgment was due. This is the world that receives judgment in this hour. You might be thinking right now that it's a little bit strong to characterize world and humanity as a bunch of rodents. You might think that illustration a little bit strong. You might have this thought, what's really wrong with the world? I grew up with a commercial on TV when I was a young kid, probably less than 10. A commercial that I, I will never forget. I saw it so much. It was a Coca-Cola commercial. And I think it was primarily around Christmas time where it showed all these people standing around a fire, people representing every tribe and tongue and nation, size, shape, color, and they're all singing this song. And it went something like this. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And I thought, man, that's so cool. That's a picture of the world as it could be, as we all are peaceful. And we're all, I can't remember if they're holding hands or if they're holding candles. But it was just really, was it candles? What a sweet picture. I mean, isn't it? but that is not the picture of the world. There's the potential to view the world that way. Like we're living in a peaceful world, drinking our Cokes, singing our songs. But the reality is we may be drinking Coke, but we're not peaceful. This world is not a peaceful place, and we are not inherently good. I had thoughts of that, visions of that when I was a kid, maybe shaped from commercials like this. But what I realize now, having served in the Marine Corps, having watched the news, having seen just the last few years in Iraq, is that nations don't happen upon peace. Peace must be earned. With blood. You don't stumble upon harmony. It has to be earned. And then once found, it has to be maintained with blood and sweat. We don't find it naturally because this world is not inherently good. Whatever you may think about this world or whatever you may think about man, this philosophical question are we inherently good? Are we inherently bad? All you need to do to really find the answer to that is to raise some kids. <laughs> have a few kids and you'll find out from the beginning is that you don't have to teach kids to say, mine. 
You don't have to teach kids to fight and argue. It comes naturally. If you leave your home and your family to its own device, it will be a war zone. You don't have to teach kids to be selfish. We are not inherently good, and this world is not inherently good. But these are all anecdotal pictures. We can have an anecdotal worldview, but as Christians, we are not called to have anecdotal worldviews. We're called to have a biblical worldview. So let's see where the world is in relation to God from the Word. Look at John chapter 1. Again, look at verse 10. Now look at what it says. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Ultimately, we've got to have a biblical worldview, and the ultimate guilt against the world is the fact that this world rejected the Christ. The world is guilty, and the world is due judgment in this hour. Look at John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist is recognizing Christ and says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God Who takes away the sin of the world? He's got to take something away. And what that something is, is a corporate sin and a corporate guilt. Corporately, this world is like the rodents at the Alexandria Animal Clinic. Crossways with the owner. Not in right standing with the owner. Crossways with the owner and with his broom-bearing son. That's the picture of the world. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. I told you we were going to stay in John this morning. We're at least still staying in John. Same writer, just a different book. John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. We're developing a biblical view of this world. We're not going to let Coca-Cola commercials develop our view of the world. We're going to let this Bible tell us what the world is really like. And here's what it says in chapter 2 of 1 John, verse 15. John, the writer of the book, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world is not lovable. And a love of the... Well, it's lovable (laughs) in the wrong way. And the love of the Father and the love of the world can't even coexist. But listen to what he says next. He says, for all that is in the world, he's about to offer like a cliff notes on the world. Anybody know what cliff notes is? I I, I used them when I was in college when you had to read a book and you didn't have time to read the book because you're too busy doing something else. So you had to find a cliff notes. I'm not encouraging that, college people. Our parents, you're like, hey, don't encourage. I'm not encouraging that. My grades reflected that. But the cliff notes was kind of the thumbnail sketch of a book. John is about to give us a thumbnail sketch, a cliff notes of the world. And here's how he describes the world. All that is in the world. First, the desires of the flesh. I feel it. I want it. Secondly, the desires of the eyes. I see it. I want it. And third, the pride in possessions. Now that I've got it, I'm not only proud of it, but I'm proud of myself for getting it. That's what he characterizes. That's the cliff notes of the world. And he says, this is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
So all that is in the world is the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride in possessions, and New American Standard calls it the boastful pride of life. I'm just envisioning those rats sitting in that dryer, sitting on some wires, leaning against that motor or that dryer, gnawing on some dog food, laughing. <laughs> boastful pride of life. That's a picture of the world. And this picture reflects that the world is guilty. And the world is due judgment. Judgment is appropriate for this world. You might still yet, through the anecdotal view or maybe the biblical view, not have that picture. I'll share with you personally that I have a picture of at least my own little snapshot of the world. And the more and more I study this book, the more and more I prepare for teaching and preaching, the more and more I see of myself, I realize that most of what drives me is contrary to the Creator and contrary to God. Hopefully that's changing little bit by bit over time. But if I'm honest, the more I study, the more I see pride, the more I see selfishness. And if I manage to do something good, chances are it's going to be laced with self-interest. Chances are. And I'm wondering that if you're reading the same Bible, and if your mirror is anything like mine, that you may be saying the same things, and you may be seeing the same things in others, that hopefully we can agree together that this world is guilty, and that we're part of it. We're due the broom. Because we're crossways with the owner. This is a corporate reality. If you go to China you'll find selfishness. If you go to Kazakhstan, you'll find the boastful pride of life. If you go to Africa, you'll find desires of the flesh. You'll find desires of the eyes in Mexico. You'll find pride in Canada. You'll find rebellion in Europe. And chances are you're going to find some of these things even in Scotland. You're going to find this thing, these things that characterize the cliff notes of life, the cliff notes of the world, desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of possessions, the boastful pride of life, everywhere you go and you'll find them in your mirror if you're honest. So judgment, condemnation, and punishment for the world is appropriate by a just and holy God and the broom is our due. We've got to see that and appreciate that. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. What is judgment for most and what is judgment for the world is hope for some. What is judgment for the world and judgment for most, the very same hour, is hope for some. In the very same event, of the light bursting into the world and the world fleeing from it. That, that very same event in the light bursting into the world and shining in this white-hot cross nails hour is the judgment of the world, but yet some are saved. That's the scandal of the gospel. That's the good news, people. You want to know what the good news is? That's the good news, that a bunch of rats didn't get broomed that a bunch of rats that should have gotten it didn't get it because something else intervened. That's 
the scandal that he saved some of the guilty. For those who are saved, those who are believing on Christ, those who are faithing Christ, it's a new word we're making up, faith with an I-N-G, those who are worshiping Christ, those who this hour is becoming more and more invasive, more and more life-changing every day and every week, for those who are believing, the reason that we are being saved is not because of anything in us. It's because Christ bore the broom in our place. That's the good news. That's how in this hour, both in this hour, as some are judged, most are judged, but some are saved. The scandal of the gospel would be like that same scenario where me and my dad are having a rat killing, where my dad and I start talking about these rats, and we decide that we're going to show grace and favor to those rats who don't deserve it, and where we actually come up with a plan that I'm going to get down there on my knees next to that little hole where those rats race out of, and my dad's going to beat me to death. So some of those rats might live. Imagine reading that in the newspaper. Veterinarian beats son to death so some rats can live. That's the scandal of the gospel. As crazy as that sounds, that little scenario pales to the reality of what we're doing and what Christ has done in our place. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this little phrase will just invade life and home and heart. Lord, I pray that this hour we'll see as a, um, a bigger hour. We'll see a more powerful cross. We'll see more guilty us. And grace will be bigger and deeper and wider and just more surprising and amazing. Lord, I pray that truths like this will invade our hearts and that men will sit down with their Bibles between Sundays with their families and they will read together and engage together and pursue and worship and faith and believe together. Lord, I pray that simple phrases like this, now is the condemnation of this world or now is the judgment of this world, simple phrases like that will just wreck us and change us from the inside out. Or we'll worship more aggressively. We'll believe more robustly. We'll be saltier, brighter, and more aromatic. We thank you for Christ bearing our due. It's in his, in his name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.